a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, once again, thank you for joining us. Thanks for reveling in Wrong Think, and if you're new to the audience, well, I just want to welcome you. I know we've got a few people checking it out. I, I hear from people from time to time saying, hey, I told one of my coworkers that uh, they need to check out your show. And, and I want to share something with you here as, as we get started. Um, just a little bit of background. So if, if you're wondering, where are we coming from? Is this, is this just, you know, the, the rant and rave of the day? Um, no, at least it shouldn't be. Now, I do get kind of tuned up sometimes and a little bit uh, uh, fired up over various things, but... I want you to understand the larger purpose behind why I sit down and crack open this mic and bring you the guests and bring you the commentaries and and share the things that I share with you in my show notes. It's because I believe that it matters. Freedom matters. Private property matters. Freedom of conscience matters. And I I talk about these things not because, you know, I've got all the knowledge in the world and you're going to sit back and listen to every word I say. It's because I see them very much uh, under attack or if, if not under direct attack, in many cases, just simply falling out of fashion. Because people have become disconnected. And, and I, I don't know how to put it other than we've had it very easy for a very long time. We haven't had to do a lot of heavy lifting on our own. And so with with that in mind, it makes it easy to take things for granted. And I believe that uh, I have a duty to speak up and I have a duty to try to stand for those things that are really important. In fact, I, I, w- I want to give you just a little bit of background as to uh, to who I am and what I do. I've, I've been in radio now for, let's see, going on 36 years. I just passed the 36 year mark uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's quite a milestone. And, and I will tell you that I had aspirations at one point. I was going to be the next Casey Kasem. I'm guessing a lot of you aren't even old enough to remember Casey. Who? Casey Kasem? What, is, what did he used to do? Oh, he used to do American Top 40. What? Ryan Seacrest's show? Yeah. Yeah, but for a long time it was Casey Kasem. And then I, then I heard Don Imus and I thought, no, I'm going to be a shock jock. I'm going to be just like Don Imus. Bottom line is, eventually... Uh, Rush Limbaugh came along and there was this renaissance of talk radio and I started doing talk radio after saying I would never, ever do it. But I learned that it's actually kind of fun to talk about current events, to talk about current issues, to, to become informed and to try to persuade people a particular way. Now, I have to admit there for a long time, I was really good at just arguing and, and I love to argue about it. And, and that's what I would do. And we'd have these great rhetorical battles on the air every day, and it was fun. But eventually I came to a point where I realized, you know, getting people riled up is one thing, but actually standing for something, instead of just proclaiming what I'm against, it's it's quite a different thing. And being fortunate enough and blessed enough to run in circles of people who who have made a life out of standing for something. 
Their influence helped to move me in a direction which I hope is is more productive and provides you with greater value than just simply, oh boy, listen to what Brian's mad about today. We live in a really interesting time. And as I have made my way through, you know, all these years of doing radio and, and, and trying to figure out what is the most valuable thing that I can share, there are a couple of tough truths that I've had to arrive at. And, and these are not easy because for many years, the longest time I can remember, you know, radio is measured in, well, how big is your audience? Are you talking to millions? Are you talking to thousands? Are you talking to a couple dozen people? And it all comes down to the numbers. Podcasting can feel that way, too. I've watched as podcasting has become a, a pretty a major force in how people communicate. But one of the toughest truths, and at the same time, one of the most liberating truths that I have had to adopt is that what I have to say is not meant for everybody's ears. And the mission, that personal sense of mission that I'm pursuing every time I sit down and do this program is not meant to touch everybody's life. Now, that may sound like a cop-out, so you're just going to start phoning it in because, you know, it's, uh, it's only for a few? No, here's, here's the other truth that, I, that I've arrived at. There are people who are seeking the kind of uh, straight-up analysis and principled views of, of the world around us and what's going on you know, seen through the, the prism of what are the principles at stake more so than what party is going to benefit from this. And who know that they have a role to play. There's a reason why this kind of truth matters to them more than which party is in power, more than whether their candidate won, more than whether they are enjoying the fruits of whatever political system they happen to be under. And the fact that you're listening to this uh, probably indicates you're one of those people. You're willing to endure some uncomfortable truths because it matters. In the long run, this matters more than the latest political, you know, melodrama of the day. And so hopefully that's what you're finding as you tune in. I have great sponsors that help to make this possible. Sponsors like Alta Bank and Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. And there are others that are in the process of coming on board, that I, I'm, I'm grateful to have them helping make it possible for me to speak to you as I do and to share the things that I do. And if you find value in these things, I encourage you, do business with them. Even if you just look them up and tell them, I wanted to thank you for helping to sponsor this program. Uh, I've got the contact information right there in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. It's right at the bottom of the page. But that's why I do what I do. The company that I founded a few years ago, when I got serious about, uh, you know, this is this is going to become a matter of personal mission. The company I founded is called With One Voice. And I want to share with you just uh, some clarification here, because I don't want you to think that it's all about it's my voice <laughs> that's that's bringing you the truth. I have a role to play. But more than anything, what I am trying to do with my efforts is I am trying to bring people together to where we can speak with one voice on those things that matter most. And whether that, vo that with one voice is us speaking to God and seeking help from above, or whether it's just speaking to our politicians with one voice and letting them know that uh, we have reached the breaking point, I feel like that's what we need to do. I want to play a clip for you. 
This is from, uh, uh, I don't even know what meeting this is from, but this is somebody else who has found that purpose. And I'll warn you, he gets a little salty. Anybody who's in the restaurant industry for just a minute, I'm part of that industry. I'm part of the restaurant industry, too, for any of you that are in it. And I just want to say one thing that's very important. Everybody in here has to understand. Probably Give everybody, one more minute, guys. Probably everybody else with any business. We, we, we've been used to living very well, like Marie said. Very free, enjoyed our lives. Got to stop thinking like a victim criminal mentality. As the victim, oh, I'll just do whatever the criminal tells me to do. They'll let me go when I'm done. They don't want to let us go. They want complete freaking control of us. They don't want us going back to normality. So this is the time we got to stand up. Every freaking business has got to stand up and put these sons of bitches down. Amen. Because if we don't, they're taking us out. That's right. I'm 60 freaking years old. I've lived all my life as an American. That's right. And Robbie's right. This isn't about Democrat or Republican. This is about American. That's right. And I am not ready to give my country up to these people so that they can ruin my life, everybody's life in here. We got to stop them. We got to grow this group. Like Marie said, here, state, country, global. We got to really do this. This is, this is the time to be serious. If we're not serious now, and it ain't going to take them long, you're looking at six, eight months. This coming summer could be an absolute freaking disaster for freedom, for patriots, for this country. We got to do this now. Every day has to be serious. Forget about looking forward to next Christmas with your family, next Thanksgiving with your family. It ain't going to happen if we don't stop them now, this year. So that's it. Just keep going. Take this serious. I want to finish my life owning my business. I said to Kelly this morning, all I want is my life back. I'm not looking for fame. I'm not looking for fortune. I want to mow my lawn on a sunny Saturday morning again like I used to, and not worry about who the hell's coming to try to bomb my house, take it from me, and ruin my life. We gotta keep together, we gotta grow. Get the word out there. I'm not giving up. So neither should anybody here, I don't think you will. Okay, that's a guy on fire. That's a guy who knows what he stands for, and and I don't know if if that is something that speaks to you. Whether you're a business owner or whether you're just a person who is determined that I want to live free, you have found the right place. This is where we gather to revel in wrong think, to encourage one another, and hopefully understand how to better use our influence to make it happen. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And welcome back to the show. Okay, so with that rousing uh, first segment, <laughs> at least I hope it was rousing. I hope that it, uh, it touches the right spot in your heart. Let's talk about some of the things that are going on today. I know that the, the news cycle is all over. Well, a stimulus spending coming. And boy, they're treating it like this is, this is the greatest favor since God granted us oxygen to breathe. Oh, if, if only the, the federal government had just acted sooner, why, we'd all be doing better. And, you know, a friend had posted something on Facebook earlier today, and he just said simply, I don't want a check. I don't want 600 bucks. I don't want 1200 bucks. 
I want my life back. And I thought that's uh, that's a very good way to look at this. And I think this would be true of most Americans, especially those who work, those who've been told you're not essential or have been told to, to shutter their businesses. I mean, we, we can get into some of the COVID stuff if you want, but the bottom line is government never, under any circumstances, should be in the position of telling people you're essential, you're not, and, and, and shutting down huge swaths of the economy. And so for, for those in government to act like, well, you know, we're doing you this huge favor and, you know, we're spending trillions of dollars. That's not an exaggeration. $2.3 trillion, $900 billion of that $2.3 trillion spending package, we're going to uh, put towards COVID stimulus. But only a tiny portion of that, and I think it's less than $200 billion, is actually going to be sent out to the American people in the form of, here's your $600 check, or maybe they'll get it up to $2,000. We don't want a bribe. I don't care how big a bribe they want to offer. We want to freely earn our living. We want to live our lives as we choose. Cheryl K. Chumley has an excellent article on this in the Washington Times. Americans want work, not stimulus handouts. She says $600 here, $2,000 there, government funding here, coronavirus stimulus there. As Congress and Capitol Hill grapple with the fate of, uh, of final and ongoing relief funding amounts for American homeowners, business owners, and citizens, and sadly, even non-citizens, in other words, illegals, she says the simple fact is this, these handouts are getting wearisome. Americans, true Americans want to work. Enough of the sitting at home, nail-biting over a virus, waiting for the government dole-out check to come in the mail. That's for the takers. That's for the lowest of the low. Americans, true Americans, want to provide for themselves and their own families rather than rely on tax dollar disbursements and redistribution of resources for survival. By the way, I realize what she's saying here could be construed as harsh. It doesn't make it any less true. There are takers and there are makers. And right now, the makers are being sidelined at the behest of not the virus, but government officials who, in, in response to the, a virus, have chosen to take the worst possible route of how to address and mitigate those risks. In this case, Cheryl Chumsley says it's high time for government to bow out, to back out. And let the businesses of the country open fully and function freely. Who the heck is Dr. Anthony Fauci to say otherwise? Who the heck is a local health bureaucrat to dictate closure? The government has seized too much power during these coronavirus times, so much so that American business owners, specifically America's small business owners, are being placed in positions of having to beg, plead, please, pretty please petition their own public servants for the right, the supposedly inalienable right, to put food on the table for their children. That's why that gentleman in the first uh, segment in that audio clip I paid, played for you is so fired up. How egregious. This is America, land of the free, not China, con country of the communists. Or is it? Cheryl Chumsley says store owners in Manhattan are fighting to reopen their doors and say their livelihoods are at stake. ABC7 reported back in May. In New Orleans, the owner of a gallery and lounge that launched just before the pandemic 
reopened it as a takeout eatery with just himself as the lone employee. That's according to the Associated Press, reporting back in June. But by November, the headlines turned more aggressive. Business owners confront health department as it attempts to shut down gathering. Here's one from the Mercury News in December. Some California businesses, business owners will defy governor's coronavirus shutdown order. And Cheryl Chumsley asks, and why not? Fight for your business that you invested so much time and energy and money into it to stay open and fight for your rights. Stand up for your family, for your employees, for your community, wrote California vegan restaurant owner Alondra Ruiz on Instagram. Yes, indeed. Fight. True Americans want to work, not live off the taxpayer dime. Yet it's these true Americans who want to work who are being condemned by government, by a government that is one day at a time, one business at a time, steadily but assuredly smashing entrepreneurial spirit while simultaneously boying do-nothing types. That's not just bad for business owners. That's bad for all of America. That's devastating for all of America's middle class and for the entirety of America's economy, which relies in large part on small businesses to thrive. Business owners know how to protect themselves, their employees, and their customers and clients from coronavirus. And a government that doesn't recognize this basic truth is a government that's bent on seizing power and control, using the coronavirus as a platform to bring these power-hungry goals to fruition. It's not the coronavirus that's killing America's small and mid-sized businesses, that's driving entrepreneurs to their knees, that's whisking the entrepreneurial spirit out the windows. It's the government's response to the coronavirus. That's a distinct and crucial difference to remember because it identifies the real enemy in this coronavirus chaos. Yes, she says there is a virus. Yes, this virus causes health problems, even death. But this virus doesn't give government carte blanche to do as it pleases. It doesn't blot out the Constitution or the rights contained in the Constitution, recognizing the individual as the authority, the politician as the public servant. She says on the decimation of America's businesses, let's be clear, government is to blame, not the virus. True Americans see this and fight not so much for more stimulus but for their God-given rights to work. And that is the side on which all America must stand. That's Cheryl Chumley writing for uh, the Washington Times. And I think she's dead on. By the way, there's a great link to her article in the show notes. There comes a time where you have to claim your rights, use them, and defend them. That's the only time your natural rights are sure. And the problem is, there are a lot of people who have unfortunately adopted the idea that, uh, well, you know, I'm just waiting for someone in authority to give me permission to go back to being free. I understand you want to do the right thing. I understand you don't want to be recklessly going out there and spreading coronavirus. Can we at least look at some of the facts, though? The harder some of these areas have locked down, California, I'm looking your direction. The harder that state has locked down, the more stringent their restrictions have been. The more businesses they've closed, the more they've threatened people with arrest for simply being out, walking, even by themselves. The virus has continued to spread. It has not slowed down one whit. Why can't politicians say we were wrong? 
I think at this point, in, in my opinion, the reason they can't say it is because they're recognizing, ooh, we've opened ourselves up to some liability here. Maybe it's, you know, legal liability. Maybe they're actually worried that there is going to be, you know, vats of tar and bags of feathers waiting outside the door the next time they step outside. But they are not going to be the ones to to come to their senses and say, well, okay, I guess you can be free. They keep promising us, you know, at some future point, yes, we may let you return to your life after you've accepted communism. (laughs) Nope. We have another option, and it's called claim your rights, use them, and if necessary, defend them. That's how free people think. That is how free people act. They do not wait for permission. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. All right, I'm going to take a little uh, little detour. And you're going to think I'm weird for bringing this up, but you know what? I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, a year ago, I was uh, spending some time with my daughter in Germany. And, and to get there, I had to fly to Amsterdam, drive across the Netherlands, and uh, then ended up in Lower Saxony. And it was it was great. One thing that surprised me, though, and... I'm still just a little bit geeked out about it was um, pay toilets. Yeah, I don't know why. You know, I mean, we, we get kind of spoiled here. Uh, we, we have public restrooms, but, you know, if you wanted to stop and uh, use a comfort station, you had to pay for it. And thankfully, I was traveling with my son-in-law. I had some bills, but I, I didn't have the appropriate euro coins. And so my son-in-law, you know, saved me a fair amount of discomfort by, you know, lending me a whatever it was, a 50, a 50 euro, 50 cent euro coin, whatever it is. Anyway, and 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 so I, I had to stop and think about this. Why would it make sense to have pay restrooms? And if you've ever been in, in a large city, especially, I think we used to go to Salt Lake City before COVID. We'd go and look at the Christmas lights and, you know, wander around Temple Square. And sometimes it could be very, very difficult to find a working public restroom. Or if you did, there was a long line out the door. Why? Because there's thousands of people. It's a really uncomfortable place to be in. And it raises the question, why is there a shortage in public restrooms? Well, believe it or not, there is a remarkable article published on the Foundation for Economic Education website. Scott Beyer is the author. And he explains why there is a shortage and how for-profit restrooms can solve the problem. I mean, we, we still have a joke around our house. I think we got this one from The Simpsons. You know, you uh, have a can of Pringles or something. and Hey, are there any chips left in there? You open it up. Nope. Emptier than a Scottish pay toilet. That's just, it's an old Rodney Dangerfield joke. Here's what Scott Beyer has to say. He says, the lack of public restrooms in U.S. cities has long been a problem. Frankly, a bane of urban life. It's particularly hard on pregnant women, delivery workers, homeless people, or, he says, as I can attest, having just moved to New York York City, transit riders. Now, he says, this shortage wasn't always the case. City restrooms used to be safe, clean, and widely available in America and still are around the world. But now they're rare here and expensive and difficult to run where they exist. The difference has been the altered incentive structure towards restroom provision, which caused scarcity. So here's the reason why. 
next time you're dancing from foot to foot in some major city. As Aaron Gordon writes for the Pacific Standard, publicly available restrooms used to be common in the U.S. because they were for pay. In the early 1900s, they popped up along railroads and then spread to the nation's airports, bus stations, and highway rest stops. Now, they were also common in busy urban commercial districts, often provided by the company Nicolock. By 1970, America had over 50,000 for-pay toilets. Several separate interests began dismantling this business model in the 1970s. One was the feminist movement, which didn't like that some companies charged for using commodes, but not urinals. Now, granted, commodes are more expensive to operate, making this policy about more than just gender. But another was the American Restroom Association, a group that still exists to call for legislation that supposedly improves restroom design and availability. Third was the Committee to End Pay Toilets in America, or SEPTIA, a group of teenagers who got tired of paying to use restrooms. In 1970, they launched a grassroots crusade against for-pay toilets, under the rubric of human rights, even writing a school spirit style song will work until we know that toilets in America are free wherever we go. We'll flush them out. We'll wipe them out. We pledge. Oh, septia. I can't imagine the tune it was set to, but I bet it was catchy. And Scott Byer says the pressure was especially was surprisingly rather effective. And states begin passing legislation to ban for pay restrooms. And by 1980, Almost none existed. Now, the expectation from Septia and others was that this would cause a wave of city governments to fill the void by providing free public restrooms. That turned out to be naive. What happened instead was an extreme restroom shortage that continues today, causing real inconvenience in cities and sometimes public health problems with well-publicized stories of street defecation in cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles. One reason is that public entities don't have money to maintain restrooms, since there is no user fee for it. Safety and the high cost of ensuring it is another commonly cited problem. So public restrooms largely don't exist, with transit stations being one noted example. Some major U.S. transit agencies have bathrooms in their subway stations, but they're either closed, tough to find, or unusable. The New York MTA, according to a 2019 New York Times report, had operative restrooms in just 51 of 472 stations. Bathrooms are also scarce for systems in Chicago, D.C., and San Francisco. When cities try providing restrooms, it's often disastrous. Another casualty of the waste endemic in municipal governance and public-private outsourcing. Take San Francisco, the infamous city of street pooping. It costs the city works department $2 million to build bathroom kiosks, due to the city's onerous labor rules. It bid the kiosks to a French contractor who collected kiosk ad revenue in exchange for managing them. The company garnered $118 million in revenue over two decades, but neglected to adequately oversee the kiosks, which became drug and prostitution hubs. So Scott Beyer says the answer for state and city governments to begin repealing their laws is for them to begin repealing their laws and letting the market provide publicly available restrooms again. This happens worldwide. Four-pay toilets are common across Europe, generally available for under a dollar, U.S. dollar anyways. In Latin America, standalone facilities are managed by attendants who collect tips. Other times, retailers will sell the use of their restrooms. In Mexico City, he says, he found clothing stores offered theirs for 25 cents. Thus, it was easy to find one, even in dense areas like Centro. 
But he says the odd thing is that skeptics would call this common international practice inhumane. But as the U.S. shows, outlawing the profit motive for restroom, the restroom provision just means there are fewer restrooms. And that sounds even less humane. I know you're thinking, Brian, really? Is this a topic we needed to cover today? Probably not. But I thought it was fascinating and and it just it, it struck the right nerve, uh, having remembered that I was surprised to find those uh, restrooms for pay in Europe. Now, I have to say. They were clean. I don't know if that's part of, you know, the, the fact that people had to pay to go in and use them. But uh, the, the whole tragedy of the commons thing that unfortunately we tend to associate with public restrooms here in America. You don't see that that much when people have to pay to use it. And I'm just going to add as, as, a, as a small uh, position of authority from which I'm stating this too. Um, I work part time. I have a part-time gig, and part of my duties as part of that part-time gig means occasionally I get to go clean the restrooms in a retail setting. And, you know, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to regale you with horror stories, but I will tell you that, uh, you know, there's there's definitely a fair amount of upkeep, maintenance, cleaning, keeping paper towels and toilet paper stocked and so forth, emptying the trash and what have you that goes into it. It's not just a matter of, yeah, you just build it and leave it and everybody can take care of themselves. I mean, I wish that were the case. Maybe maybe the innovation is yet to come. As much as I want to have a problem with the idea of pay toilets being the norm, I think actually it's it's not a bad idea. Now, by saying this, I'm in no way condemning the homeless or I'm I'm not trying to point a finger at them and say, you know, this is terrible. You know, they should never be allowed to use this. It could be a problem for them. At the same time, I believe that uh, subjected to market forces, you would find enterprising souls who would make it possible for someone who just needed a restroom to be able to pay whatever the necessary toll was. I don't know. You know, I I mean, I I think of the little change tray that, that sits by a lot of cash registers. You'll see this in convenience stores, for instance. And when people are short a few cents, they'll grab a couple of pennies from that. Or if if they you know don't want their change back, they'll just toss it in there. I always like to think of that as, you know, it's, it's an example of someone paying forward for a little good karma. And I really hope that good karma comes to them when they do that. Because when somebody is trying to purchase something, especially if it's a kid looking to buy a candy bar and they come up, you know, three cents short, it is really cool to be able to reach down and say, no problem, you're covered. So why wouldn't somebody do something similar in terms of if somebody really needs to use the restroom, you know, you're covered. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'm not that much of an entrepreneur, but I imagine there's somebody out there who could figure some way to turn it into a fairly lucrative business without charging people an arm and a leg or shaking them down to their bones just for the privilege of using my potty. So the next time you find yourself hunting for a restroom, in a public place, consider, you know, that uh, that maybe those with a bit of a profit motive could be doing you a favor by making sure you have a clean, safe, well-maintained restroom to use when you need it. And as we're going to talk about in the next segment, there really is no such thing as a free lunch. Somebody's got to pay for it at some level. Maybe a user fee is the better way to go. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, phone lines are open if you want to join the conversation. Here's a fleeting opportunity, 801-331-8113. Even if you just want to wish me a belated Merry Christmas or a Happy New Year, yeah, you have that option. Okay, so a couple things I wanted to touch on. I have a, I have a piece I want to share with you from Ryan McMacken about how there is no such thing as free parking. Yeah. This is another thing that uh, kind of vexes me when I go out. When I venture into public, which I don't do as often anymore, not just out of fear of COVID, but mostly because I don't like having to hunt for a parking space. I don't like having to work my way through large throngs of people. Don't like having to look for a restroom. Yep, I'm just turning into a grumpy old man. Exactly like the gypsy woman said I would. Huh. Go figure. Before I get to that article, though, I, I want to point you towards uh, one that I'm including in the show notes. This is a pretty lengthy article. And, and one of the reasons why it is so lengthy is because it is written by Glenn Greenwald, who I hold up as, uh, I think, one of the finest journalists in the world today. And Glenn Greenwald has an article on the threat of authoritarianism in the U.S. And it's really interesting. And, and I'm, I'm going to preface this by saying his article is very long on facts and short on partisan hyperbole. He tells it really straight. I'm not telling you that, therefore, you have to believe everything you read that he wrote there, but um, I'm, I, I think that he is less biased in a partisan way than, than most journalists out there. And the threat of authoritarianism, as he sees it, is not, no, not so much coming from which particular politician is in power, it's coming from a direction that, uh, that affects all of us, and that is primarily the big tech, Facebook, Amazon, Twitter, etc., Google. That's where the authoritarianism is really starting to rear its head. And you've got to keep in mind, this is not some right-wing, rabid, you know, spittle-flinger who's just upset at the big, you know, New World Order conspiracy this is a very accomplished journalist who most likely leans uh, hard to the left, but he, he calls the threat as he sees it. By the way, there's something else he points out here, which I'm sure will delight uh, some of these folks. And that is he points out that uh, for all those warnings we were given that Trump was going to be the dictator, he was going to be the fascist, the jackboot, you know, he was going to be Mussolini reborn. Well, believe it or not, the actual authoritarians, the ones I just mentioned, the big tech giants... They were the ones warning us Trump was going to be so dangerous. This is why they do their fact-checking. This is why they, they spike certain stories and remove certain stories, or their algorithms limit people's ability to access information on certain subjects. Because they were worried that, uh, you know, we've got to do something to resist this authoritarian that Trump is going to be, except he never manifested as the dictator that they told us that he was going to be. Now, please don't mistake what I'm saying for uh, suggesting that, therefore, he never could. I don't know. We'll see what happens on or around January 6th and see if that's possible. But, you know, if, if past performance is any indication of what we can expect, it's doubtful. He wasn't the monster that they told us that he was going to be. And it turns out that uh, all that projection about uh, authoritarianism really turned out to be projection, largely. 
It's a marvelous article. You'll find it in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Please check it out for yourself and see what Glenn Greenwald is talking about. It's really, really good. All right, shifting gears. Let's talk about why there's no such thing as free parking. Something that uh, probably meant a little bit more when you were out there, uh, you know, chasing around trying to find a place to park for your Christmas shopping. Ryan McMacken asks the question, how much off-street parking should a restaurant have? Now, this, of course, is a pretty important question for the owner of the restaurant since he or she will need to make sure that people can easily access the building in order to eat there. Any entrepreneur who wants to run a profitable restaurant will need to guess how many parking spots are needed based on a variety of factors. That's going to include proximity of housing, public transportation, and the personal preferences and demographics of the clientele. So if the owner supplies too little parking, then motorists will simply drive on by, opting to dine somewhere that offers an easily accessible parking space. On the other hand, the owner doesn't want to provide too much parking because parking spaces use up square footage that could be used for other purposes, like a large outdoor patio on a restaurant. So in economic terms, parking spaces are no different than any other amenity that could be offered by a business, like tables, bathroom stalls, air conditioning, and windows. And yet, Ryan McMacken says, in most urban and suburban areas of the U.S., the number of parking spaces is not at all left up to entrepreneurs. Instead, parking spaces, parking resources rather, are dictated and mandated by governments, which decide for business owners how many parking spaces must be, must be allotted to each structure. Now, these mandates often take the form of a per X mandate. In some places, it might be a minimum number of parking spots per 1,000 square feet of retail space. Other cases, as with housing, there might be a minimum number of spaces per bedroom. A hospital might have a minimum number per bed. And he asks, what is the correct number of parking spaces? Well, the answer is the government has no idea. As with all similar interventions in the marketplace, government mandates on parking spaces are really just arbitrary numbers picked by central planners. So why do governments intervene in the first place? Well, McMacken says, as is often the case with local government interventions, however, the policy's origins are found in complaints from the uh, residents in the neighborhoods in question. So in a world with government roads, of course, new restaurants and retail shops do not exist in a vacuum. They're placed near residential areas because businesses often are most profitable when placed near the people who might consume their product or service. However, when government roads surround a private business... The owner might attempt to free ride on the on-street parking spaces that are nearby. This becomes a political problem because local residents are also often themselves attempting to free ride on the government roads by parking on those same streets when at home. As a result, many local residents might come home from work to find that diners at a nearby restaurant are all parked in front of one duplex's house or apart one duplex or house or apartment building. And although these residents don't own these on-street parking spaces, you better believe they regard those spots as their spaces. So their motivation is the same as the shoppers. Residents don't like to pay for parking. It's much easier and cheaper to just park on the street. So on-street parking becomes a battleground for workers, residents, and shoppers, all of whom want to park in the same place for free. 
So at the next city council meeting, angry citizens show up and demand that government not allow any new businesses unless those businesses are forced to provide parking spaces of their own. And the result is what we have today. Mandatory parking lots are plentiful. Moreover, in order to keep local residents and neighboring businesses happy, city governments err on the side of overly abundant parking for new development, which is why so many parking lots are half empty much of the time. Now, the real cost of mandated parking can be seen in uh, researcher Donald Shoup correctly pointing out that free parking is never actually free. It's true that government mandates on parking create the illusion that it's free, but people drive up to a place of business, they see an open space in a parking lot, and they conclude, ah, it's free. But in reality, the price of goods and services are, all other things being equal, higher due to these mandates. The number of businesses are fewer, and competition is lessened. It becomes impossible to know how a certain plot of land might have been used had government mandates not dictated that parking lots be placed there. It's a classic case of seen costs versus unseen costs. The cost of too few parking spaces is always obvious. Someone's parked in your spot. The cost of too many parking spaces often remains invisible since it's built into the cost of doing business for retailers, employers, and other producers who still have to pay for those extra spaces. So how should parking work? Well, in a functioning marketplace, of course, there is a market for parking spaces, just as there is for anything else. If an office building, shopping center, or restaurant is truly attractive to motorists, motorists will be willing to pay to park near those shops and eateries. And if motorists aren't willing to pay the ongoing or the going rate for parking in an area, well, then they have two options. They can find some other form of transport, or they can shop or work in a place where parking is less expensive. Moreover, says Ryan McMacken, in areas where parking is scarce, prices will be high for the space necessary to park. This means entrepreneurs, assuming government regulations don't prevent them, can then respond as they would to high prices for any other product or service. They'll start to provide more of the demanded good or service. It's a fascinating article. If you find yourself frustrated because you have not enough parking... Maybe you're a business owner, you have too much parking. I think you'll really appreciate what Ryan McMacken has to say. Check it out. It's in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Send some love the way of my sponsors as well. And as always, thank you so much for listening. This is The Brian Hyde Show.